welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Today's guest is Joshua Weilerstein, who is the artistic director of the Lausanne Chamber Orchestra in Switzerland and runs his own classical music podcast called Sticky Notes. He's been really helpful for us starting our podcast, and we're really excited to have him as our guest today. He's brought in Ludwig von Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, the third of his nine monumental symphonies. We do our best to define the relevant music-y terms throughout the chat, but because this is our world and we're human, there might be things that we miss. So please let us know what these are, and we will be sure to clarify them in future episodes. And don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes along with a link to a Spotify playlist, so you can go back and listen to all the pieces from this podcast yourself. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. What a success. Josh, it's so nice to meet you officially. You too. Yeah. You too. Thank you for being on our podcast. Of course. Happy to. Also, thank you for um, all of your help so far on figuring out this podcast. I really appreciate it. Sure. Well, it's I'm, I'm basically improvising the whole thing. So it's um, I'm glad to hear that something helps. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. And it, it is nice to share the information. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh. On this podcast, we like having our guests introduce themselves. Do you mind starting by introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Joshua Weilerstein. I'm a conductor. Uh, I also have a podcast, classical music podcast, um, and really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. It's great. Yeah, you have a very awesome podcast that we both really enjoy. And um, yeah, I'm really curious to talk to you more about that later. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so for today, you've brought in uh, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. Um, do you remember the first time you heard it or played it? Or what was the first impression you had of this piece? That's a really good question. I, I'm trying to think of the first time I heard it, because actually it wasn't one of the Beethoven symphonies that I came across first. Of course, everybody comes across the fifth, I think, first. And then I think I, I discovered the fifth and seventh on one single recording of Carlos Kleiber in the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, and then I'm sure I heard it as a kid, um, but I didn't really start learning it until I had to conduct it, to be honest. Um, and then I played it, um, in an orchestra in Boston and that really, you know, you always learn it more playing it than, than anything else. Um, and so that's where I really fell in love with it when I played it. And then I think a few months later I conducted it. Ah, nice. And do you remember the discovering the fifth and the seventh what when did you find that recording um so i knew those two symphonies somewhat you know as a kid and then i was in the car with my parents and i i don't remember exactly how old i was maybe 16 or 17 and you know in the back of the car there was the you know that little 
place where you just shove everything that you don't need or don't use for a while. <laughs> yes. And so I just like was, you know, digging around there looking for something to listen to with my parents in the car. And I found this recording of Beethoven five and seven. And I still remember the album cover, I think has like Kleiber's face, very, you know, like shrouded in mystery. And, <laughs> and I, I handed my parents the CD and I said, do you know the CD? And I think my dad had bought it years ago. And he said, Oh, I haven't listened to it in a while. And we listened to it. And I think the car was silent for, an hour which is a world record for our car and um <laughs> it was just mind-blowing i mean it was like it really was that cliche of like hearing the piece again for the first time And do you remember what stuck out to you about it? Like, what what was that experience? Well, first, it was hearing the very opening in a way that I had never heard it before. You know, everybody, I was so used to hearing this pum, 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 this very, you know, kind of heavy, romantic way of doing it. And Kleiber just does it essentially in tempo, um, which means it just, has, it's electric. And so there was a sort of like electricity and tension throughout the whole thing. Uh, and the the big uh, reveal of the C major in the last movement. I mean, it, you, you know, you're in a car, but you want to jump out of your seat. Um, yeah. And um, then the Seventh Symphony also had this sort of like um, like boyish energy to it. It was so rambunctious, and you know, it it just was a completely different way of understanding Beethoven than I ever thought. And it was now looking back on it, I felt like Kleiber did such an amazing job of sort of melding the energy and the brilliance and the sort of drive while using this gigantic orchestra, but you would never know. It sounds like you're very much within the world of Beethoven right now. Are you studying them for something uh, in particular at the moment? Yeah, well, we're hoping um, that we have, I have a Beethoven cycle in, uh, so we're playing all the symphonies in 11 days um, in, wow. in September. Obviously, we don't know if it will happen. It's in Switzerland, who's been doing pretty well with the pandemic, but we're obviously the most concerned about the ninth because of the voices. Um, but we're optimistic at the moment that even if we can't have an audience, we'll have it streamed. Um, so if I can get to Switzerland, which hopefully I'll be able to, then we'll be able to do it. Um, so I've been this summer um, actually pretty busy trying to relearn all nine symphonies at once. So mm. that's been that's been a wow. busy time. <laughs> have you ever learned all of them at the same time before? No, I've done all of them except for number eight, um, but all at, always at different times. Yeah. So yeah, I've never, I've never actually, it's a lot of, you know, getting them back in my, in my body now, but it's, it's a lot of music. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a lot to do in 11 days. Yeah. Like, how do you go about finding the mental space to switch between the, the symphonies when you're going through them? Well, I tried to, um, 
sort of give one adjective to each one to sort of describe them in my head. Um, and then actually what I've been more doing over the past few weeks is finding the similarities between them. Um, even as they are such a survey of his life and his experiences. Um, one thing that I've noticed a lot about them is his humor um, is it's not only in the eighth symphony, which everybody thinks of as the funny one, but it's in the first, there's it's the first symphony is really funny. The second symphony is very funny. Um, Eroic is not so funny. Fourth symphony is very funny. Um, and then the sixth symphony and seventh are also, you know, there's real moments of humor. I mean, they're not like Haydn jokes where, you know, it's obvious that he wants you to either laugh or what Bernstein said, like you, he wants you to smile on the inside, but with Beethoven, I, there's so many funny moments in his, in his symphonies. Um, and that's something I never really had explored before, but now in the holistic view of them, even the ninth, Symphony, you know, after that unbelievable moment um, with the choir, the forgot moment, um, then that Turkish march imitation is so silly. And even the fourth movement of the Eroica, I find actually quite funny. The way that he That's plays true. with the, the fugue theme and then mm-hmm. it's sort of like things get really intense and big and then he just pulls the rug, you know, from under you. <laughs> um, That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The offbeat kind of bing, boom, bing, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, nerd, nerdy funny, but still funny. <laughs> There's a great Beethoven book by Jan Swafford um, where he talks about how the jokes in Beethoven symphonies are more for connoisseurs than they are for like the general public. Mm. Like he almost used the jokes to see who was quote unquote really listening. Um, and so, you know, the, the first symphony, the very opening is a joke, but unless you have perfect pitch, you have no way of knowing that. So I went through my whole life. I don't have perfect pitch thinking it's just a normal opening. And then I looked at the score and it's a symphony in C major that starts in F major, which is not funny, really. It's just a joke for people who look at the score and go, oh, ha ha, Beethoven started the symphony in the wrong key. You know, and it's (laughs) like, you know, ha ha ha. Peak nerd. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) That's really funny. Yeah, which honestly I I would, I do find funny. Yeah, (laughs) right. And I mean, I guess part of the humor that comes from these sim- these symphonies from Beethoven, from classical music in general, uh, also has to do with the way you set it up as a performer, yes. right? Because that's the whole, like, the delivery of the joke. And the joke's only funny if you deliver it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the part you were just mentioning, Emma, about the, in the Eroica Symphony, um, it's so, it is really silly. It, almost, it sounds like um, 
like a bunch of pirates, you know, just like attacking each other all of a sudden. And then, as you said, it builds this kind of cacophony. And then he just said, eh, I'm just kidding. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. Forget it. And it, you can make that more funny in a performance by really exaggerating both both characters. And for sure, that can come out more in perform in some performances than in others. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to be pushing that funniness in these? I'll try. Yeah. yeah. Give it a go. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think of Beethoven as a really extreme composer. Um, yeah. And he, I mean, that's not like a revelation, but I think he, you know, there's those stories about him conducting and being just so wild. And um, there's a great description of him conducting um, from Louis Spohr, who was playing in an orchestra with him after Beethoven was deaf. And the way he, would conduct was just so, you know, people would laugh at him today. And so I think it just shows what he was, he was looking for total extremes. And I think especially because of the repertoire that came after him, we have to to work harder to be extreme with Beethoven than, than maybe he would have had to in his time. Mm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I also um, was looking at some research of like the salon concerts of, of Vienna at the, at the time. And there was this great quote, I don't have it with me right now, but um, of Beethoven, like always challenging these other composers and pianists to duels, like improvisation duels. I mean, talk about peak nerd, but, um, <laughs> but apparently he was, he was so like, especially because he, as he was getting deafer and deafer, he was becoming quite annoying to be around and quite sort of <laughs> aggravated um, easily. Yeah. And he'd just do these like almost two hour long improvisations on one of his pieces just to like show off to the other person um, to really just like, you know, labor the point that he was awesome. And, and then they'd sort of blow up in these big fights about you know, if you were allowed to improvise in that particular way or, you know, whether that was even in the rules of the duel. And I just like, I really want to be on a fly on the wall for that, for those, all of those salon concerts. Um, He sounds like he was a character. Yeah. I think there was one story I just heard uh, about those duels where he, this very famous improvising pianist showed up in Vienna and didn't pay his respects to Beethoven, which was a big mistake. And so he then challenged Beethoven to a duel and then he played and then Beethoven did something where he like plucked one of the piano strings and did a improvisation based off of that. And then he plucked another one by mm-hmm. random, like he closed his eyes and just plucked a string. And then it was so spectacular that by the, by the time Beethoven finished, the other guy had left Vienna. Yeah, it just was was on his way out of town. You know, he was like, I I, I give up. I'm out. Yeah. So you know, it's, he's definitely one of those. I don't know, like you know, they, people always ask, like, who would you want to have a beer with or a coffee with? And like, I don't think he would have been my choice, but I certainly would have wanted to be, as you said, a fly on the wall watching him deal with other people, and you know, that would have yeah. been amazing. Yeah. You'd rather not like be a part of the duel. You'd rather watch <laughs> the duel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So can you tell us why you decided to bring in the Eroica Symphony today? Well, um, 
Yeah, when you asked about it, I, I thought, well, why don't we just talk about all of them? But then you, you said maybe it's something more specific than, you know, three hours worth of music. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I just feel like it's, you know, the, the Fifth Symphony is the most famous one, and it almost becomes a cliche, even though I think it's just so spectacular. And the Third Symphony just somehow keeps evolving past that, like it never becomes the cliche in any way. Um, and I just find it totally overwhelming just how far he went uh, in his process and how he broke every rule in the book and how it was the longest symphony ever written at the time and how he just, he was inhabiting a new world. And to to, to think of something so forward looking, I don't think you can imagine anything in the, in the Western classical music tradition of some of a, of a composer moving the bar that far in one piece. So I just, you know, it's, it's endless, the things you can talk about with it. So that's why I chose it. Okay, everybody, get ready. We're about to give you a lot of info on Beethoven and the symphony. Please bear with us. <laughs> Beethoven, as you may know, was a prolific composer in Vienna at the turn of the 19th century. His third symphony, the Eroica Symphony, was written in 1803, very soon after he had realized he was going deaf, which caused him a lot of inner turmoil. Many say the Eroica Symphony marked the beginning of the heroic middle period of his writing, where he began composing on a much larger scale. Beethoven originally dedicated this symphony to Napoleon, who he believed to embody the democratic and anti-monarchical ideals of the French Revolution. But when Napoleon declared himself the emperor, Beethoven became disenchanted and withdrew his dedication, instead titling the piece The Heroic Symphony, composed to celebrate the memory of a great man. Shaded Napoleon! (laughs) This symphony was the longest and loudest symphony composed to that date. Josh will go through the piece more later, but for now it has four movements that generally follow the standard structure of a symphony from this time. But Beethoven here expanded the limitations in almost every way possible, so the audience of the time was completely shocked. In a few minutes, Josh will use some musical jargon to describe bits of the first movement, so we'll briefly map it out for you now. So the first movement is in what we call sonata form, and has three main sections. The first, called the exposition, sets up the two main musical themes. The second, called the development, is where they are developed. And then the third, called the recapitulation, is where the opening themes are repeated, and then everything comes together at the end in the coda. So that's the first movement. The second movement is a funeral march, the third is called a scherzo, which translates to a joke and is sort of a waltz, and the last movement is a theme and variations where Beethoven has a real party playing around with the theme. Well done! We got through our music theory lesson for the day. (laughs) What other ways... uh, I was going to ask, what other ways do you think he, like, totally push the envelope which actually is not the world's greatest question for this because the answer is so many ways (laughs) everything Um, what are your favorite ways that he pushes the envelope (laughs) well i mean the the first thing is if you listen to the first two symphonies which are wonderful they're still very much like in the style of haydn sort of like i always say it's like haydn on steroids um, that there's this sort of muscle about it that Haydn never would have, and Haydn didn't like in Beethoven's music. Um, but then this symphony, it sort of just takes, it's like the first one you see him like stamping his name on it. Like, this is all mine. There's not, there's no, there maybe is a little Haydn in the last movement, but basically it's Beethoven, it's Beethoven's story. Um, whether it's about Napoleon or not, it doesn't, in my opinion, really matter. It's, I think it's about, 
a hero of some kind, um, mm. probably himself in some ways as well. And I think, you know, what he went through just prior to that with his deafness and with his almost committing suicide, you know, obviously that all goes into it, but whether the piece is about him or not, there's like a personalization of the music. It becomes so human in a way that I think Mozart operas do, but maybe not his symphonies as much. So like in a, in an instrumental work to become so personal is, is in my mind, just it's mind blowing. Mm. Yeah. I, I, also think that it must have been so interesting to be in Vienna at that time at the turn of the 19th century and like to think about what was going on in Beethoven's head with this kind of political shift and cultural shift and kind of getting away from the aristocracy mm-hmm. in a way I mean they still were there was still this big class system of course but um but sort of going back to the like the music of the people this kind of shift as well and I feel like this symphony definitely um embodies that in some way I don't know if you agree but yeah definitely I mean it's it's always so hard to pin down politically what he felt because obviously he did certainly worship Napoleon for a while and then the famous thing where he heard that Napoleon had declared himself emperor so he scratched out Napoleon's name on the cover Um, but then later he said like, this is about Napoleon. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm using the pandemic to, to work my way through war and peace. And I'm reading about, reading about the French revolution and, you know, Napoleon was a really complicated person and had some amazing qualities and had some really disgusting qualities. And also, you know, the Napoleonic wars were, catastrophe beyond anything like any of us can understand for Europe at the time. I mean, it was, they were three times the length of the Vietnam war, four times the length of world war one. And, you know, the, the amount of death and unnecessary killing that went on, you know, and Beethoven was just living through all of that. And I can't imagine that didn't come into his mind. Um, But again, like he was one of the first people that would take outside events and put, put them into his music and his instrumental music too. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, And probably as a musician, I mean, we all have this, we kind of have to shift our alliances or maybe we don't have to, but um, out of necessity of living because usually our income comes from certain places. And so we have to kind of shift our alliances sometimes. And especially back then you can see that, you know, if some duke is paying for a symphony or for a piece, then of course you're going to have to stick with your alliance for that that particular person. Or if you then choose to go away from the courts or go away from whatever kind of income source you have, then that's a huge deal. And I mean, we still have that. I mean, we have yeah. less and less government funding now for the arts, and so <laughs> we have or to figure zero out government funding or zero. for us yes. Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and so it's kind of similar in a way these days where we have to really think about where our alliances lie and like how ethically we can produce music while still kind of trying to convince people to give us money for it. And I can imagine he was probably having a bit of that oh, yeah. turmoil uh, in his brain as he was composing at the time as well. I think his life was basically a series of meeting a, a rich uh, member of the aristocracy, them falling in love with his music, and then 
slowly the relationship breaking down because Beethoven was an impossible person. Um, (laughs) And, you know, he was the most famous composer in the world pretty much right away, but he always had trouble and he always had difficulty like making money. And he was, you know, we always think of these like mythical artists, but, you know, most of his time was spent dealing with a thousand different medical problems and uh, constant financial issues of just trying to get money from people and, you know, he had a really, I mean, beyond everything that we know about, he had a really difficult life, um, just physically, not beyond his deafness. He had liver problems. He had wrist problems. He had feet, foot problems. He had problems that are like really disgusting too, which you can read about in, in books. And at the same time, he would, you know, I was just reading yesterday night that he wrote these two, you know, real trashy pieces for the Congress of Vienna because he wanted to be thought of in good circles you know and so he you know he was not above doing that to Mm. to make to make some money and also to keep himself relevant yeah he knew how to play the game and he also didn't know how to play the game exactly well he would he he wanted to and he knew it would help him but he had so much trouble sort of sustaining that um that personal connection with people because he was just really really like temperamental and difficult Mm. yeah yeah um, so going back to Eroica, um, yeah. you were saying before that you have adjectives that you've put to each kind of symphony. Um, can you tell us about the adjectives you put to the Eroica symphony? Um, well, this one, I basically just put fire, uh, like the first, and it's, they're, they're all different in terms of, in the, in terms of the adjectives, I think of them more in sort of his progress as a composer. So like the first symphony, I think of something like simmering, the second symphony sort of boiling, and then this one just like explodes. Um, And yeah, so I think there's just a kind of fire about the, especially the first movement that is, is irresistible. What is it about the first movement, though? Like, I guess as a conductor, now that you're conducting these pieces, you get the whole overview of every instrument. You don't really have, maybe you still have a bias being a violinist, but um, you get to see all of the instruments. What instruments get the fieriest part, do you think, in the first movement? Well, he, it's, I think actually the thing that makes it so fiery is how everything is just flying around all the time. Um, he breaks up lines in a way that no other composer did before. Um, even something like the second theme, which is barely even a theme that sort of goes from the first violins to the clarinet and goes to the flute and then back to the first violins again, or, you know, something like that. And then in the middle, in the development section where everything is these, all these little accents that are sort of flying around the orchestra. Um, I think that's where that, energy comes from is just the variety um, that he achieves just through orchestration. Here's the bit of the first movement that Josh was just talking about, where the theme that's barely a theme gets broken up between different instruments.
And here's the other part during the development section where you can hear different accented notes popping out from around the orchestra. Do you have a favorite moment in the symphony hmm. or favorite parts? It could be multiple. Um, I just love the coda of the first moment. I mean, the, the famous part in the development where everything sort of crashes together is just incredible. But for me, like there's, there's a joy and a kind of freedom and ecstasy about the end of the first movement that I, I always um, find so moving. Um, and there's a moment also near the end of the second movement in the funeral march where all of a sudden he, he sort of brings everything very inward, um, and it goes, um, into a totally different key and it's just very sweet, tender music. Um, and in the midst of a funeral march, that's very striking, um, and also there's no more marching anymore. It's just very kind of like a dream. And I find that also just incredibly moving and very personal. And also even the third movement, I remember whenever I played it, it just goes and goes and goes and you sort of, then yeah. you're like, oh God, I have to play it again. I mean, okay. Like it's sort of the energy that it takes to actually just get through the whole piece is, for, uh, yeah, from a player's perspective, from conductor's perspective, like being on the stage and like, you have to like really get swept up and, and yeah. get that adrenaline going because otherwise you can't make it through. <laughs> Yeah, and the very end for violinists, it's just like you might your arm just falls off. And I'm I'm yeah. actually <laughs> there is I have some concerns about it because we're you know we're going to play the first two symphonies on the first half, which are not super easy by any mm. means. So that's actually I'm that's going to be the hardest concert for us is the first one because um, that's one, two, and three on the same concert. And I have to decide about repeats and all of this. Like, is it a real Beethoven cycle if you don't take all the repeats? Probably yes, but yeah. you know. <laughs> Won't everyone die if we do the third, the repeat in the first moment of the of the Eroica? These are the decisions conductors have to yeah. make. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That does have to be your decision. Yeah. You can't just be like, can we take a show of hands? Yes. <laughs>
Exactly. I also really love, I really love the opening oboe solo in the second movement mm-hmm. of the funeral march. Mm-hmm. I think it's so beautiful. I was listening to it last night and then um, before I went to bed and then I had a dream last night that I was playing second oboe. <laughs> I don't play the oboe, but in my dream, it was like amazing. I was like, this is the best ever. And it was like totally great, but we were in a tent. Hmm. And I also showed up one minute before the concert started. So that part was stressful. But the actual music of it in my dream, I was a really great oboe player. It was really nice. Inspired by Beethoven. Exactly. (laughs) In a carnival tent. Yeah. Cool. Speaking of which, though, do you have a um, dream like performance space or performance kind of set up for, for this symphony? Um, I think to do it in Paris would be amazing because of, you know, the, the, the connotations with Napoleon, um, there's, it's no escaping how political of a piece it seems to be. Um, and it, it, you know, we, everybody puts on Beethoven what they want him to be, you know, the Nazis used him too. So, you know, it's not, he's not some, you know, hero of democracy, which I don't think Beethoven would certainly have he wouldn't have even known really what that is. Mm. Um, so, you know, there, I'm sure he did believe in, in re- Republicanism as Napoleon thought of it at first. And so I think there is parts of, there is a part of that in this piece. Um, so some sort of, you know, benefit concert for, uh, you know, certain people running for president right now might be something I would be interested in. Yeah. <laughs> Certain specific people, Certain yeah. People uh, whose name rhymes with Raiden. Uh, and not dump. No, not dump. And where in Paris would you want that uh, benefit concert to be? Well, you know, the 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 theater where the Rite of Spring was premiered is still standing. So, you know, doing a concert of some I mean, this is totally off the top of my head and totally impractical for a million reasons, but doing a concert where the Eroica is on the first half and the Rite of Spring is on the second half would be pretty exciting. Mm, that would be awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and hopefully there'd be a riot in the in the audience. Exactly. Afterwards. Exactly. Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh, that would be amazing. I would want to be there. Yeah. For that. Play? that sounds good. Yeah, someday. We'll do it someday. someday. <laughs> Post pandemic. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um so for people who maybe haven't heard Beethoven's symphony before or maybe have just like heard bits of the fifth symphony in the back of, you know, or in those, I remember like when I was younger and the the Windows media player had those like music samples of a few pieces and I think it had the start of the fifth symphony. Um, how would you suggest that uh, people get kind of into this Eroica symphony or the Beethoven symphonies in general, yeah. Um, I don't know if I would actually start with Eroica because it's <laughs> yeah. really long. Um, you know, it's it's again talking about repeats. I mean, it can be anywhere from forty-five to fifty-five minutes long. And there was a famous thing that happened in the first performance of it where a guy stood up in the middle of the last moment and shouted, "I'll pay you if you just make it stop." <laughs> um, because it was like 15, 20 minutes longer than any other symphony had ever been. So, you know. And that must have really surprised people because at that point, people knew how long a symphony yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. you He was doing everything how you weren't supposed to do it. 
Yeah. Um, and apparently Haydn showed up during the last movement. Oh, wow. And commented to Beethoven that he said, it's a very nice symphony, but it's very noisy. <laughs> that was his comment, that it was very noisy. It sounds uh, so like Haydn yeah, exactly. to say. So nice, a little bit noisy. Yeah, exactly. Classic Haydn. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know if I would start with Eroica, though I think it is maybe the pinnacle of of what he achieved. But I think starting with the fifth is actually a really great idea. Um, it's really famous for a reason. The first movement is unbelievably exciting and dramatic and also... I think very clear in how it works. Like it has a, it has a narrative despite it being instrumental music. Um, and then the last, the, the slow movement is, is beautiful. It's sort of this fantasy dream. And then the last two movements again are always sort of building towards this moment of triumph. So if you think of the fifth symphony, like a, like a film, you know, of, you know, a, of a, a, the protagonist gets into trouble, dreams of, better times in the past and then finds its way to triumph. You know, I think that's a way to do it. Um, and from there, I mean, if you're a nature lover, the sixth, the sixth symphony is just glorious though. Yeah. Again, some people find it boring cause it's very long, um, especially when they're first hearing it. Um, but the storm in that symphony will blow you away. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it just, getting into his world of and something that I always have to remind myself of because it just, it's something that doesn't sink in to, I think anybody listening to his symphonies is that he wrote all of them except for the first one while he was suffering from varying forms of deafness and the amount of courage that it took him to communicate all of these ideas and every single one of his symphonies ends in some sort of form of triumph or joy or ecstasy or happiness. And not all of his other pieces end that way, but he felt that a symphony should. And to just bust through everything that he was dealing with, I think is, is a very compelling and sort of always relevant thing about his music. Mm, yeah. A sense of hope at the mm -hmm. end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't realized that they all kind of have happy endings, but it's yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, that was partly conventional and partly his choice to, you know, because obviously he, in the string quartets, he certainly doesn't mind sometimes ending in a minor key. Also, he pushed the envelope in so many, like he did so many things that were outside of the box. Mm -hmm. He easily could have decided yeah. to change that also for the symphonies. It wasn't, he was like, I must play by the rules. Right, exactly. One of the most um, moving things I ever read was a, an article about Mahler's Sixth Symphony, where he said, the reason that Mahler 6 is so devastating is not because of the ending. It's because a different ending was possible up until the final two minutes before the end of a 90-minute symphony. That, you know, you the, the, there's this striving and striving and striving, and the moment you get there, you're just struck down. And Beethoven could have chosen to do that in any of his symphonies, and he never does. And there's something really uh, hopeful about that, I think. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, even like going back to the jokiness of the last movement of the Eroica, that in itself kind of, you know, there's so much sort of struggle and triumph and these big political sounds kind of going on. And then to sort of actually just kind of make a joke about it at the end and, and be a bit silly and just sort of like, okay, let's just have a bit of comic relief, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's something that uh, Jen Swafford talked about 
to me. Um, I interviewed him for a podcast about this, not about this symphony specifically, but we talked about this symphony. And he, I, I said to him, you know, I've always found the first two movements, and it's especially for people who may be hearing it for the first time, the first two movements are so emotional and so intense and dramatic. And then the last two are quite frivolous and fun. Yeah. Um, and do you have a, um, you were talking about a narrative of the of the fifth symphony. Do you think of a kind of person's narrative of the Eroica? Like what, what journey do they go through in the four movements? Um, I think pretty similarly to Jan um, in, his, in his narrative of it. I think the first movement definitely could be seen as a battle. I think of it maybe more like a journey. Um, you know, the, the opening theme is so kind of uh, wondrous and, you know, you, you feel like you're you know, on a train, on a boat, on some, you know, vehicle going somewhere. Um, and then the, the, the middle section, the development is, again, probably the most dissonant thing that had ever been written to that time period in a symphony. Um, the climax of the development features two notes that should not be played together, played together. Um, that breaks all the rules and it's you know the devastation of that moment is so profound that it makes him write a whole new theme which again is breaking the conventions of what you do in a symphony and that theme is so um kind of hopeless and 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 lost and then it finds itself at the end of the first moment and it's again it's like so triumphant and joyous um and then the funeral march is very clear in its narrative. You really hear the marching feet and you hear the memories you hear, like almost like you hear a eulogy. Um, and actually something I was going to have been meaning to get into research of is what funerals were actually like at that time. Um, and I've, I've been wanting to read about that. And I, I think I've just found an article about, or a book about, I mean, it's amazing to think somebody wrote an entire book about this, but about funerals during the French revolution. Oh yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's something I've been really, um, getting interested in is how that would have sounded and looked. Um, and then the, yeah, the third and fourth movements are a celebration and joy and funny and cheerful. And, um, but I think the, the, maybe the one of the most compelling moments in the pieces in the last movement where the temple slows down again. And he, for a moment brings back this sort of fear and, terror of the second of moments of the funeral march and then he just tosses it aside and goes to this totally raucous and out of control ending um but there's he doesn't i think he's it's sort of like at that moment he's sort of reminding you like don't forget what we went through to get to this point
it's not an abandonment of everything exactly. that's come before. It's yeah. like the incorporation of what's come before into the celebration now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And are you noticing now that you're studying this again, are you noticing anything in it in ways that you didn't the last time that you played it or the first time that you played it? What's striking you? Um, partly how just sort of, uh, intricately written it is and how everything connects to everything else. Um, and how little moments like the one I just mentioned in the fourth movement, you know, really connect you back. Um, and something I've been thinking about a lot because of a masterclass I watched with Yvonne Fisher, um, the amazing conductor, um, he was giving a class during the pandemic, actually, to a socially distanced orchestra and conductor and everything. And um, he talked about finding what's important. And that sounds very like shallow, but actually he means it in, a, I think, a very deep way, like finding the important notes that show you where Beethoven is going and how to color those and how to play those, how to conduct those. You know, if you look at the, like the very beginning of the piece, um, I'm probably singing the wrong key, but the C sharp that, you know, for a listener of the time, they might've thought the orchestra made a mistake. It, it was that out of the ordinary. And now with, you know, with our ears, we've heard every kind of music. And, you know, sometimes I think about, this is a tangent, but sometimes I think about the fact that Beethoven never heard music of the world. He heard music that was in Europe. You know, we've heard, we hear, we can, we have access in 2020 to music of every single culture that has ever recorded music before. And Beethoven never had that. And so, you know, our ears are used to so many sounds that Beethoven's audience wouldn't have been used to. So there's that, you have to sort of kind of cleanse that out of your ears to listen to what Beethoven was, I think, trying to communicate. Yeah. And how how do you think you can sort of cleanse your ears in that way to listen to it differently? Well, I think you can do two things. I think you could just focus, which is what I've been doing, and basically only listen to Beethoven for like a month and a half, Yeah, well. <laughs> which is intense. Or... Or you can go the other way and say, okay, well, now I have access to this, this music of the world and I should incorporate it into my understanding of the symphony. You know, Beethoven, I think, probably would have embraced it had he been able to hear it. I think so. Um, there's a really funny, um, in a book about Leonard Bernstein, where he talks about he invited a famous um, Indian sitar player to Boston for like a cultural exchange and, you know, musical meeting. And Bernstein went to one of their performances where they, you know, they play these like hour long ragas that, you know, are, are just so amazing. And Bernstein was just completely blown away. And he was so excited that he invited the, the guy to come to a Boston symphony performance the next day. And they were playing Mozart's 40th symphony, you know, which is like the pinnacle of Western classical music in a lot of ways. And he was sitting next to him and in the middle of the first movement, he noticed that, the guy, that his friend was asleep. And so he poked him and he said, like, wake up. And he got up and then second movement, asleep again. And Bernstein, after the concert, said, what's wrong with you? This is like one of the like pinnacles of our culture. 
And the guy was like, oh, it's so boring. Like, it's like baby music. It's just ba-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-da-da-da, ba-da-dum, 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 bum. And he considered it like it was childish to him. Mm, and, yeah. you know, just that kind of cultural difference of, you know, we worship at the altar of Mozart. And this guy just didn't think it was very interesting. Um, and, you know, I think... Not very rhythmically complex, No, right? not at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. Yeah, he said it's his baby rhythms. And mm-hmm. so, you know, having both maybe focusing completely on Beethoven and then also taking in all of this influence from around the world, I think you can get kind of a holistic view of of this piece in 2020. Yeah. It just made me um, think about, I was actually listening to your latest podcast episode <laughs> um, uh, with Yundu Wang mm-hmm. um, uh, this morning, actually, on my ride along the dunes of, of the Hague. And um, mm. yeah, it was, it was super interesting. It was a really great interview. Um, and I definitely want to get her thesis. So I'm going to email you about that. <laughs> but um, this, so she did a, a doctoral thesis on the connection between language and music. And it's really got me thinking about how we interpret music, not from our own kind of history and like especially Australian it's yeah I have my own kind of things about that because I come from a very you know far away place and I play a lot of European music by dead white guys and you know it it, it's an interesting thing like how do I use my voice yeah and my experiences to then interpret this music that was you know written by so for Beethoven you know someone hundreds of years ago that had a very different life experience to me and that yeah you're just talking about using the experiences of of the whole world to to help you interpret Beethoven is very interesting because he obviously didn't have that but maybe we can use use these different um cultural languages to yeah. find new ways of interpreting his music. Like maybe that's actually a very good gift that we have now with this globalization of the world. I mean, I think it's a great thing. And I think there's there's a sort of tangled web that we can't really uncover. You know, I'm American, but in a way I shouldn't be. My, my great-grandfather came from Lithuania, running away from pogroms, and my grandparents were from Vienna and they ran away from the Nazis. So, you know, the, I'm only American by the historical events that made me that way. Um, and so, you know, it's funny, like I, I do have some issues sometimes in Europe as an American conductor, you know, there are definitely stereotypes against Americans and as Chloe probably knows. And, you know, it's something that sometimes I want to be like, well, you know, do you know where my family came from? I'm from here, you know? I, I'm second generation, you know, um, and and by the way, it means nothing. Exactly. You know, we're all uh, we're all a collection of our experiences and make music the way we make music because of who we are, not because of the flag that you know our passport. So I, you know, it's something that obviously I, I get agitated about because I think it just it puts people into boxes that are totally unfair and most of the time inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true because we can't help um, the the globalization of what we've heard. And mm-hmm. you're right that it's also what we grew up hearing, listening to, and that that is in some way related to where we grew up, mm-hmm. but not entirely. Yeah. No, not, not at all. entirely. Mm-hmm. And Americans, I mean, we're white Americans. Like 
we have not been there for a super long time. No. Like I also shouldn't be American either. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I shouldn't uh, be Australian. <laughs> yeah. And now, like, I'm trying to get Spanish citizenship because they kicked my family out a long time ago, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're trying to sort of recreate some of those bridges also because then I'll have an EU passport and it will be easier. But yeah. um, liquid gold. <laughs> well, I, uh, when we were, my wife and I were deciding whether to move, we were thinking of a few different European cities and we ended up in London um, before Brexit. And so we were just, you know, figured we have sort of EU residency at that point. No, not anymore. Anyway, but so after that happened, we were thinking like, should I try to explore getting Austrian citizenship because of my grandparents? Um, You could. I could. Yeah, we've thought about it. Um, You know, we haven't really gone through the process yet, but it's, it's something interesting to think about. And when I'm in Vienna where my grandparents were and my there's the, in the central Friedhof where Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart you know, are all buried in a long way away in the, in the cemetery are like old ancestors of mine. Wow. And so, you know, there's, there's no, I mean, Americans, I think in almost in, in a way in particular with the, the amount of immigrants that have come there and the amount of stories, it, it's very profound. And obviously a reason why it's, you know, so disturbing to see, the rhetoric that's used today about immigration. Um, And, you know, because if what was happening in Europe was happening now, I don't think my family would have been allowed in. So, you know, it's, it's very, it's obviously we've gone way away from Beethoven, but I think it's, you know, it's something that Beethoven I think does speak to in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he has the ability to, to bring up those, those questions and those, those issues and feelings and yeah. But I guess if we just remember the hope that he gives us at the end of each <laughs> symphony, well maybe said. we'll yes. be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a way to like wrap that up. Yes, well and scene. Very well done. <laughs> um, we, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but we have one question that we ask all of our guests at the end. Sure of our interviews and um that is this is a little bit of a funny question for you because you're a conductor so you can answer it however you would like but um is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of um yes let me think there's probably (laughs) multiple i'm sure um so i started learning the clarinet during the pandemic Ooh. partly because i want to learn klezmer clarinet Oh yeah. But also because the Brahms clarinet quintet is one of my favorite pieces ever. And I've always wanted to play the clarinet part. Um, and I know that actually he, there is an arrangement of it for viola um, playing the clarinet part, but it's, I love the viola. It's not a viola joke, but there's nothing <laughs> like, nothing like the clarinet part in that piece. So I think that's, that's a piece that I would say I'm jealous of. And also I mean, it's it's pathetic for a violinist to say they're jealous of anybody else's concerti, but like the Dvorak cello concerto is so much better yeah. than the violin concerto, and it it just it it sometimes you know I, I wish we had that one too, but it's not fair because cellists don't get a very many of them, as my yeah. sister tells me all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> how is um how is learning clarinet going? Um, you should ask my wife about okay. that. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I mean it's fine. It's like I'm I'm really enjoying it. It's because unlike a string instrument, you can start to make a decent sound much faster. Um, yeah. 
but there's a lot of squeaking going on. Lots of, uh, you know, I'm doing it basically by myself. I'm just had a couple of friends show me some things, but it's been really fun. I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm not going to play publicly forever, but it's, it's very fun to do at home. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's good. Um, and what is the best way for people to support you or kind of contact you if they want to or find your thing? Find your thing? Um, well, I have this podcast, um, which I have a, pa- a Patreon page for, if you want to check it out. Um, there's some fun stuff up there, like little mini episodes, and um, you can actually choose a piece for me to talk about. Um, and, you know, on social media, like uh, at Joshua Weilerstein is my Facebook page, and at Josh Weilerstein is my Twitter account, because they wouldn't let me do my whole name. Um, and on Instagram, mostly I'm just posting like photos of my rabbits now because I don't conduct anywhere. Um, but that's, that's where I'm at right now with that. But maybe people want pictures of rabbits yeah, also. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, These unprecedented times. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly. right. <laughs> Great. And your um, podcast is called Sticky Notes. Yes. And we will link that in the show notes. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's really fun. It's been a pleasure. so much for tuning into Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Joshua Weilerstein. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it. It really makes a difference in the algorithm of the internet magic and helps our visibility. And a big shout out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts. And we also have a Twitter account, and you can tweet us at Outside Music Box. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode, and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Joshua is going to his website, joshuawilerstein.com, or by checking out his podcast called Sticky Notes, which we've also linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box. Mm-hmm.